You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Friday, April 24th. I'm Lauren Peace. And I'm Cecily Moran. Small businesses in New York are suffering while the city is on pause. And they say they've had no help from banks while seeking federal assistance. And many physical therapy patients are continuing to seek treatment, faced with the tough choice between pain and the risk of catching coronavirus. I mean, what's the point of surviving COVID if you can't really enjoy what you want to do on the other side of it? Meanwhile, New York State breweries are finding new ways to reach consumers. The name of the beer is F the Virus. There's a couple of letters that are X'd out, but it's pretty clear what it what it is. And there are fewer New Yorkers eating at restaurants and dropping food scraps. That's bad news for another kind of city dweller. One community member told me the rats literally were galloping down the block looking for food. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News, I'm Lucas Brady-Woods. Mayor Bill de Blasio said this morning it's a good day for New York City's fight against coronavirus. So today, I am happy to say we have just plain good news. Our indicators are now moving all in the correct direction, which is down. He said numbers are decreasing for new hospital admissions, patients who need intensive care, and people testing positive for COVID-19. But he also said the trend must continue for at least 10 to 14 days before he considers adjusting any restrictions. On a statewide level, Governor Andrew Cuomo said today that all evidence indicates New York State is past the peak of the curve as well. New York State's death toll from COVID-19 yesterday was 422, the lowest in five days. In response to the high number of nursing home deaths during the pandemic, Cuomo said this morning that the State Department of Health and Attorney General Letitia James will launch an investigation into nursing homes that failed to report coronavirus test results and deaths to residents' families. Cuomo also signed an executive order today mandating that all New Yorkers receive absentee ballots for upcoming elections in June. President Trump signed a $484 billion financial aid package this morning. Governor Cuomo criticized the bill for not including relief funding for state or local governments. He says New York governments are likely to face $13.3 billion in loss of revenue due to the virus. Today is day two of the NFL's first virtual draft. It kicked off yesterday via Zoom with the Jets selecting offensive lineman Meki Bakhtin and the Giants picking left tackle Andrew Thomas. The Tribeca Film Festival would have packed movie theaters across lower Manhattan this weekend, but due to the pandemic, all screenings and in-person events were canceled. This year, the festival is offering programming online. More on that later in the show. The rain will let up tonight in New York City, leaving us with clear skies and a low of 42 degrees. Tomorrow, we can expect some clouds and a high of 62. Some showers are possible tomorrow night, with more on the way for Sunday. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Lucas Brady-Woods. And I'm Lauren Peace. Starting next week, elective surgeries will be allowed to resume in hospitals in the state of New York. Many patients with issues from rashes to sprained ankles to cancer have been waiting weeks for treatment. Dr. Adrian Diaz is a research fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. I asked him how hospitals are prioritizing when COVID-19 is still a risk for patients and staff and what elective procedures are. Yeah, so it's something that, to be completely frank with you, we we hadn't really thought much about um, in in the surgical literature Um, historically. We, we really thought of elective as anything that was not an emergency. So anything that was not a trauma or anything that was not life or limb critical. Uh, but what 
what this pandemic has really caused us to, to think hard about is that there are some procedures that we historically used to consider as elective, for example, any operation for a cancer. But we know that, you know, for certain diseases like cancer, time is of an essence. Yeah. And so when the decision was made to cancel elective surgeries, was that a decision that was made because the thought was that doctors who were doing these surgeries would have to shift their focus and aid with coronavirus treatment? Or was it more they were worried about the risk factors of having already compromised patients coming in to a hospital where this highly contagious disease existed? We certainly were concerned um, at many hospitals about workforce. So we, we knew that many surgeons were likely going to be asked to, to cover some shifts in, in ICUs. The other concern was also that we weren't going to have um, enough uh, personal protective equipment. This is things like N95 masks that we heard a lot about in, in the media, as well as surgical gowns. Um, eye protection, et cetera. These are all equipment that are um, not only used in ICUs where we're treating uh, patients with coronavirus, but also in the operating rooms. And then, you know, the third component to that was obviously um, exposing uninfected patients to, to a healthcare environment where, where we knew there was patients who were infected. Um, and we know that there, there's a number of um, asymptomatic carriers as we resume um, elective surgeries in New York City and New York State, what sort of decisions are going to be made about prioritizing which types of surgeries uh, take place? Yeah, it's an it's an excellent question, and and I think the the answer is going to you know come down to to local resources, uh, local disease burden, both from. Uh, COVID and as well as how many surgeries have essentially been postponed. The other thing that, that I think a, a lot of hospitals have to take into account is uh, their, their supply, not just um, not having any COVID cases, but it's also having the, the surgical equipment, the personal protective equipment uh, available so that your staff is, feels protected and they are uh, protected against uh, being exposed to uh, potentially an asymptomatic patient. Um, and then finally, there, there's certainly some ethical implications to, to consider. I think that we're going to have to start rethinking our informed consent procedure for, for surgery to, to begin to include um, some statement about the fact that we, we are bringing you into to a healthcare uh, environment where we, we're not certain if we may be exposing you to um, some asymptomatic carriers of coronavirus. And we, we don't have all the information available at the time to, to realistically say that 100% certain that you may not um, contract the coronavirus. So that was Dr. Adrian Diaz, a research fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan and a general surgery resident at Ohio State University. Adrian, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Yeah, thank you for uh, making the time to talk to us about these uh, really important issues. Last night, Governor Andrew Cuomo rejected Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's suggestion that states struggling financially due to coronavirus should consider filing for bankruptcy. Kira Long looks at the long history of funding battles between the federal government and states. The ongoing pandemic has driven public spending in New York State up on hospitals, school meals, unemployment costs. But revenues from sales and income tax are way down, about 14%. This is a national emergency, says Richard Brufo, 
a professor at Columbia Law School. So it makes sense that the federal government should help plug that hole. Just like federal government will help when, when there's an earthquake and helps when there are floods and hurricanes, this is the same thing. But some in Congress are resisting the idea of bailing states out. And David Schleicher, a constitutional law expert and Yale professor, says that other states also might not want to either. If you recall the musical Hamilton, um, uh, the Jefferson-Hamilton debate, uh, the Jefferson character says, why should we pay for New York? If New York's in debt, why should Virginia bear it? Uh, our debts are paid, I'm afraid. The thing is, right now, there isn't actually a way for states to legally declare bankruptcy. For that to happen, Congress would have to pass a law which it briefly considered during the 2008 financial crisis, but never seriously took up. Kira Long, Columbia Radio News. Earlier this month, the Small Business Administration began accepting applications for the Payment Protection Program, or PPP. That's the federal program intended to provide loans to small businesses to help cover their payroll and other expenses during the pandemic. Applications for these loans are processed by the businesses' banks. But as Asim Shukla reports, Many business owners are worried that their applications are not being processed fast enough by their banks in order for them to qualify. From her bedroom in Astoria, Sherry Heller is trying to lead a bunch of girls, ages 7 to 13, in a virtual gymnastics class. Second time we're going to do on our right leg, okay? So now that we kicked on our left, now we're going to kick on our right. right, right. Sherry leads these classes every Monday and Thursday for Mrs. J's Gymnastics in Williamsburg. Wei Jiang, who owns the gym, shuttered her studio on March 15th. Since then, she hasn't had the revenue to pay her employees. Heller is a volunteer. I continue to pay my staff for two more weeks, and then we're completely closed until we hear this PPP loan. Zhang applied for a payment protection plan loan through her main bank, Citibank, on April 4th. Since then, radio silence. But no communication whatsoever. So I emailed again, basically gave me indicate that they have not even looked at my application after two weeks. By April 16th, the first allocation of federal money had run out, and Zhang got nothing. But she wasn't alone in trying, and failing, to get a loan through a major national bank. Nicholas Rhodes owns Outsnapped, which provides photo booths at big events. A month ago, he watched his business evaporate in a matter of days. On March 9th, I believe, we got our first cancellation within like 72 hours of that first corporate cancellation. Every single one of our private events canceled for March, April. Rhodes applied through his bank, whose process he found confusing, and never heard anything back. Joe Manganelli helps small businesses create financial plans, and he's been helping his clients with their PPP applications. He says that three quarters of his clients didn't get loans, but some did. Most of those were ones who had relationships or applied as a new customer for um, smaller and community banks. In other words, banks whose bread and butter is serving small local businesses. Rory Retrievi is the president and CEO of MidPen Bank, a regional bank headquartered in Harrisburg. Since the PPP was signed into law, he hasn't had much rest. I went home that night and I had dinner with my family and I told them, you're probably not going to see me a lot for the next three weeks. Retrievi set up a straightforward online process, and that generated an avalanche of new applications from small businesses. We started to get phone calls from friends of ours, customers of ours, who we had done a PPP for, who were saying, hey, could you talk to my friend? And that happened dozens of times. Jeff Carr teaches entrepreneurship at NYU Stern. 
And he says it shouldn't be surprising that big banks are prioritizing bigger businesses. The reality of it is if I'm a premium tier customer, I have a relationship with someone. I'm sorry, but that's just kind of the way that thing works. I'm going to pick up the phone and deal with that customer who's more important to me. Meanwhile, Congress has authorized $310 billion in new funding for the PPP program. Nicholas Rhodes, who runs the photo booth company, has reapplied for a PPP loan, this time through a smaller bank. They actually called me yesterday to let me know that they were going to be able to start submitting again. And I actually said to him, I was like, I can't wait until this is over to come and literally meet you. Thank you and move my business to your bank, right? For Columbia Radio News, I'm Asim Shukla. is a city where residents can have virtually anything delivered directly to their doorstep. One exception is beer. It's illegal for brewers to deliver their product to people's homes. But in the last few weeks, restrictions have been lifted for small and craft brewers to help them stay in business while the city is mostly shut down. My co-host Lauren Peace reports that many in the beer producing community are hoping those loosened restrictions stick around even after things go back to normal. Bridge and Tunnel Brewery in Queens is typically packed on a Saturday night. Now, it sounds like this. Rich Cassania is the founder and owner of Bridge and Tunnel, a brewery he started in his garage nearly a decade ago. He says since the stay-at-home order was put in place, his taproom has been empty, and all that's left to fill the space are the sounds of the bubbling brew. So we lost the wholesale, and then we lost the retail. Cassania says typically a quarter of his sales come from distributing to bars, and the other 75% from sales in his taproom. With both those revenue streams now gone, he initially feared he'd have to close his business. But then, the state liquor authority temporarily lifted a ban on home delivery. The delivery function for us has saved us. He's sold out of three different styles of beer, and although there's less demand, costs are lower because he doesn't have to pay a distributor. Well, we've always done takeout for cans, but we've never done deliveries. There's always talk about, you know, designated driver. Who's the designated driver? Don't drink and drive. Guess what? You don't even have to leave your apartment now or your house, you know, to get your beard. We'll bring it right to your doorstep. But it's been an adjustment. Bridge and Tunnel was mostly set up to sell beer in kegs. Now, Cassania's had to re-engineer his system to put more beer in cans. He and his wife are personally delivering out of his small pickup truck. Their most popular beer at the moment? The name of the beer is F the Virus. There's a couple of letters that are X'd out, but it's pretty clear what it, what it is. Gage Siegel is now delivering his beer by bike. He started Non Sequitur Beer just seven months ago. It's mostly me, my dog, and my girlfriend. The day we talked, he'd biked over the Williamsburg Bridge to deliver four cans of beer to a customer. It's easy for us to be agile. It's just just me uh, and a little bit of beer most of the time. But this simply wasn't an option previously. So it's, it's honestly, at the end of the day, quite helpful. The ban on home delivery dates back to the 1930s. Before Prohibition in New York, many breweries owned bars and were able to sell their beer directly to customers. After Prohibition, beer wasn't allowed to go directly from the brewer to the customer. Breweries had to use middlemen, distributors, and retailers. 
The New York State Beer Wholesalers Association did not respond to an interview request, but the association says on its website that distributors help authorities regulate the sale of beer, help give customers choice, and help brewers promote their beers. But the same law doesn't apply to the makers of wine and cider, who have been able to home deliver since the 1970s. So that still makes no sense to me. It's incredibly frustrating for all of us. Ann Riley is the president of the New York City Brewers Guild. And a number of us have been talking, you know, what's it going to be like afterwards. But there is definitely concern that when things go back to, quote unquote, new normal, that the distributors are going to come to the state and say, you got to shut this down. Riley says that many brewers rely on distributors, but also want the option to deliver straight to customers' homes. They're hoping that the looser regulation will become permanent. But for now, the State Liquor Authority says it's just temporary. Lauren Peace, Columbia Radio News. And now in our ongoing commentary series, Take Glass asks why we tell stories over and over by telling one of his stories again. There's this story I always tell. I'm not sure why I keep coming back to it, but it's a go-to. I grew up in a small town outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and every spring there was this carnival in the next town over called the Orange Jubilee. It was your classic small-town festival with funnel cakes, kettle corn, lemonade, the merry-go-round, the drop tower, the gravitron. It was the end of my eighth grade year. I was 13, and most of the girls at school were taller than me. I longed to be noticed by them, but as a nerdy theater kid, it seemed like only the football players and the skateboarders could talk to girls. I couldn't summon the courage. One evening in early May, which felt almost like a preview of summer, my friend Michael and I went to the Orange Jubilee. We had somehow gotten a pair of those neon-colored bracelets that let you go on any of the rides. So, Michael and I rode every ride and ate every greasy, sugary snack we could get our hands on. After a couple of hours, the rides and the sweets started to make me feel queasy. And then two girls, two popular girls, waved us over. I don't remember their names, but they wanted to go on a ride together. I was surprised. I didn't think it was possible for girls to be interested in me. But my stomach wasn't feeling up for it. Michael glared at me. We had to go on a ride with these girls. And I saw his point. This seemed like a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We got in line for the hurricane, a sort of gargantuan spinning top. The central pillar was lit up with rainbow lights. I sat next to one of the girls on a hard plastic seat, and the carney came and locked the lap bar into place. The ride started to pick up speed, and our carriage rose up into the air. The centripetal motion of the ride made the girl slide towards me until her shoulder touched mine. Then, the queasiness surged up, and I started to vomit. And because I was 20 feet up in the air, spinning around on the outside of the hurricane, it flew everywhere. Down below on the ground, people ran, covering their heads. The carny laughed maniacally and dialed up the speed. The girl tried to push herself away from me, clawing against the centripetal force. (laughs) When I tell this story, that's where I normally stop. People laugh, and that's where it ends. 
I don't say that on that day, my fears about girls had been confirmed. Their interest was a fluke that had ended in disaster. So why do I keep retelling this story? I'm not entirely sure. Maybe because it represents some complicated feelings I'm still dealing with, that I'm eternally awkward. Part of it might also be out of sympathy for the young me, that kid. And maybe by retelling it, I'm showing that I can make people laugh, that I can control the narrative to some extent. I still sometimes feel awkward on first dates, but at least now I know to avoid sugary snacks and dizzying rides. These days, Tay enjoys roller coasters and theme parks, but it, it might still be a while before he gets on another hurricane. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Cecily Moran. And I'm Lauren Peace. Coming up, how should New York City schools grade their students when it comes to online learning? And the Tribeca Film Festival was supposed to be happening right now. Plus, even New York's rap population is facing challenges. How will postponing it affect filmmakers and movie lovers? These stories and more coming up. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Lauren Peace. And I'm Cecily Moran. Schools across the country are adapting their grading systems to this new virtual world. Chicago implemented a pass-fail system in their public schools. In Denver, students can choose whether they want to earn letter grades or not. San Francisco is giving everyone an A. But New York City has not yet decided what their grading system will look like moving forward. Mother B. Chatterjee is a professor at Columbia University's Teacher College. I asked her what a grade is supposed to mean, and if that should change given the crisis. The goal of a grade is to give a final summary score that is sort of a judgment or a pronouncement on um, where the students stand. Given the challenges and disruptions caused by uh, to everyone in their educational routines because of the current pandemic, certainly uh, uh, the criteria for grading um, needs to be uh, considered thoughtfully and contextualized and made more compassionate. I mean, I do not agree with giving A grades to everyone because lowering standards without, uh, uh, you know, in an arbitrary way or um, assigning grades that are meaningless or in a loose fashion does not do the students a favor. And really, it's rarely valued by students themselves or their families. Because in the end, they know, deep down, they know what the grade means. And it's, it's just been given away. So I don't agree with that philosophy. Madhavi, why do you think it is that New York City hasn't yet changed its grading policy? Uh, I know Chicago, Denver, San Francisco, um, have all made changes given the, the current circumstances to their curriculum. Why do you think New York City hasn't done that? Perhaps they are deliberating uh, matters more carefully. I hope that is the cause. I hope the reason is because um, they are talking with teachers, they're talking with students, they're talking with 
um, you know, uh, other um, stakeholders in their schools and in their school system so that they can come up with the very best plan that works well in the short and long term. What do you think it would mean for college admissions or admissions to competitive high schools if this grading policy was changed? Well, I, I think because it's such a major worldwide pandemic and New York City has been the hardest uh, hit by the pandemic, I think every institution of higher education or every high school, they are going to take the pandemic into consideration and make accommodations and adjust their policies. I don't think things will remain as is. I would be very surprised if that were the case. What would your recommendations be to parents right now who, who have children who are struggling with remote learning or or what would your recommendations be to children themselves about how to get through this? <laughs> Believe in yourself and be very, very patient. It's often the technology that is frustrating. It's a platform that helps us learn in some ways, but it does not help us learn in, in other ways. So one has to be patient with oneself and, and take it for what it is. Madhavi Chatterjee, Professor of Measurement, Evaluation, and Education at the Teachers College of Columbia University. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Many healthcare services have been either canceled or moved online during the pandemic. Others are considered essential. But how do you decide what qualifies as essential care? And who decides? Many providers are confronted with these questions right now, including physical therapists. Both New York State and federal guidelines qualify physical therapy as an essential service. But, as Lucas Brady Woods finds, for therapists and patients, these decisions are not always so clear-cut. After 57-year-old Janet Henderson had knee replacement surgery this winter, the healing process was problematic. She needed surgery again last month. Like, I can't clean the bathtub. I can't, my knee doesn't bend well enough to do those sorts of things. You know, I can't get down on my knees and play with a dog. I mean, what's the point of surviving COVID if you can't really enjoy what you want to do on the other side of it? So she's counting on physical therapy to help her regain as much mobility as possible. So I tried the exercise that we did at the end of the last time with the foot on, with it on the table. I didn't feel like quite the same. But this isn't a video chat or phone call. Henderson is going in person. She works in film production, and that means she has to be on her feet for hours at a time on set. So she said regaining mobility is important, but she also says it wasn't an easy decision to keep going in person. Henderson's son, who's 23, lives with her, and he has asthma that can make him vulnerable to COVID-19. I had a conversation with my son about it, and he was kind of adamant that I continue with it. Um, but anyway, no, we you know, kind of made a family decision that I should keep going. A lot of physical therapy patients are struggling with the same question. On one hand, they may need to learn to walk again after a stroke, learn to get dressed after surgery, or even manage diabetes with exercise. On the other hand, physical therapists use their hands to treat patients' bodies. But that can mean spreading germs, which leads to the question, what care is so essential that it can't wait? And who decides? Some PT patients have been moving to phone and online appointments. 
Evan Green, a therapist on Long Island, is still seeing some patients in person, but also treats others virtually. He says telehealth can't replace essential in-person care. So you can't put your hands on a patient. You can't assess things such as joint mobility, see what their flexibility is really like. It's very observational. So you might not catch certain nuances that you would catch in the clinic. But if a patient is at increased risk for COVID-19, Green recommends remote therapy. He says many of these patients are older adults, and that creates additional challenges. And the problem is, in terms of telehealth, they're not technologically savvy enough, a lot of them, and they're just like, no, I'll wait till you reopen again or when it's safe to come out. So now think about these patients that are sedentary for a period of four to six weeks or longer. Green says the decision about which treatment should continue in person must include a conversation with the patient. But for some PTs, the decision to suspend in-person appointments is made for them. Teresa Marco is with the American Physical Therapy Association. She also has a small Upper West Side practice and moved her entire clinic online. You know, people didn't want to come. I didn't have enough personal protective equipment and couldn't socially distance, and I didn't really have any acute clients. So I just said, this is not going to work out. So time to just close the doors temporarily. Marco says the bottom line is that physical therapists need to approach this crisis responsibly. Even though we are essential, what does that mean in practice? You have to ask yourself, you know, is it critical that you see this person face to face? But it's not easy. For the few patients who did want to come in, she's had to make some tough choices. Having to tell them that you can't come to the office and help them is a very visceral feeling. You feel really bad. You feel like, wow, I've really let you down. So yeah, it is painful. So uh, at least I'm happy that I can provide some services to a few people that are appropriate for the telehealth. As for Janet Henderson, the video producer, she considered continuing her therapy remotely, but she says she just can't achieve the same results doing exercises on her own. So she continues to see her physical therapist twice a week in person. Lucas Brady-Woods, Columbia Radio News. This weekend was the scheduled conclusion of the Tribeca Film Festival. But this year, the festival has been postponed indefinitely, organizers say. As Brett Forrest reports, without major festivals, filmmakers lose a key way to network, launch careers, and connect with audiences. Usually in late April, the streets of Tribeca are buzzing with film festival attendees, but not this year. Some Tribeca films have moved to screening online, but Victoria Negri, a Brooklyn-based festival programmer, says those are missing an important social component. That's the thing that's hard with virtual fests. You won't just like bump into people at an after party or as you're leaving the movie theater. Then there's the honor of showing your work in a theater to an audience. Alejandra Pelody directed the short film Gets Good Light, which was supposed to have its world premiere at Tribeca. As the director, it was very important to me being able to be screened on the big screen. That's not normally how people consume short films because we don't get theatrical distribution or very rarely. Producer of the film Elizabeth Phillipson-Weiner says the film festival circuit drives the whole industry and that's one of the main reasons filmmakers want to get into an A-list fest like Tribeca. You have undiscovered new talent um, that's kind of getting a boost. Really high level um, press and industry people attend and write reviews on the their work. And then you also have really established filmmakers who come to those festivals to sell their work um, that would later be distributed in theaters. The makers of Gets Good Light are waiting to screen until Tribeca is rescheduled. But those dates are still pending. Brett Forrest, Columbia Radio News. It's not just film festivals getting postponed. Coronavirus has suspended all kinds of public life, including restaurants. But we aren't alone as we miss dining out. Brats miss it too. They're growing more aggressive as they search for food, and it's concerning for residents. 
Sarah Galbart has the story. Bobby Corrigan is an urban rodentologist, a rat expert. He says there are millions of rats in New York City. For our global ecosystem, rats play an important role. They eat insects, feed hawks and coyotes, and aerate soil. In cities, though, they can be dangerous. Rats hate being hungry. The stronger rats of a colony will raid their own nests and their neighbor's nest, and they'll kill and eat the young. Or they may search for food elsewhere, like our apartment buildings. Corrigan says rats are not biologic carriers of coronavirus, but they do carry dozens of other diseases and bacteria. Rat-transmitted leptospirosis killed a Bronx resident three years ago. The rats can visit and go into apartments and defecate and urinate on people's tables or pots and pans. People can contract that just by touching that urine, then touching their mouth or face. So Corrigan has some advice about how to avoid rats, like don't leave anything around that might capture their attention. Like your garbage or my garbage or somebody being sloppy or leaving a lot of dog feces out that they should have picked up because rats will eat dog feces. It's delicious for them. Please don't reward them with anything. But some residents don't have a choice. Carol Morrison is a social worker and founding member of the Prospect Heights Rat Task Force. She describes rat infestations from summers past so severe that she couldn't use the sidewalk without rats crossing over her feet. One community member told me the rats literally were galloping down the block, galloping down the block, looking for food. We had 30 people in our lobby telling us about garbage pails that had holes in them and have had holes in them for years and rodents that were eating out the bottom of cars. Morrison worries that with coronavirus draining public resources, the city won't be able to respond to rats. In an email, the New York City Department of Sanitation said rats are not in its domain. Talk to the Department of Health. That city agency was unable to accommodate an interview in time for air. At the other end of the city, Kristen Curtis says no matter how well she cleans, she also has unwelcome guests. So a few weeks ago, I was working in my living room and I heard this loud scratching sound coming from my bedroom. I thought possibly someone was trying to break in. It was a hawk in her bedroom eating a rat. And this hawk looked me square in the eye (laughs) and was like, what? It was one of those moments where you are not so pleasantly reminded that you share this city with several other creatures. She wonders where the rats will go to find food in the midst of coronavirus. Sarah Henry is chief curator at the Museum of the City of New York. She says as long as New York City has been around, New Yorkers have been sharing their city with rats. But during outbreaks of illnesses that took place more than 100 years ago, things were different. Those huge outbreaks of things like uh, cholera, yellow fever, smallpox in the 19th century that took so many lives also took place at a time when we didn't have a waste disposal system. Henry says pigs were the sanitation system of the past. They ate our trash. Rats also consumed waste, but their main role in cities was to spread germs. When this pandemic ends, many of us are hoping to go back to work, and so are the rats. At least they won't be spreading coronavirus. Sarah Gelbard, Columbia Radio News.
We end today's show with another installment in our commentary series. Reporter Cecily Moran shares how a certain family ritual helps her find comfort in any sort of chaos. I am making mac and cheese on the side of the highway at the southbound border of Oregon and California in our RV, which has broken down. I'm part of a small documentary film crew following a guy traversing the Pacific Crest Trail to raise money for Parkinson's disease. The crew is just me, a cinematographer, a sound engineer, and my sister Marion, the director and leader of this ragtag bunch. When I graduated college, my sister invited me to come and help her with the documentary, to blog and handle social media. Not having a job lined up or any idea of what kind of career I wanted, I jumped at the opportunity. It sounded like an adventure, and one that pushed aside the thought of entering the real world. We ended up living in an RV for two months as we followed our subject's progress down to the Mexican border. We would hike for miles with heavy camera equipment on our backs or force our poor RV down what barely constituted a road, hoping that our subject's GPS had signal and that our map reading had brought us to the right place. Sometimes we would get there in time to film our subject. Sometimes we had just missed him. Often the crew was filming, editing, or dumping their files, which made me the go-to person for managing the essentials, like grocery shopping and cooking dinner. I had already enjoyed cooking, but parked on some forgotten dirt road or in the parking lot of a rickety old campsite, making dinner took on a new sense of importance for me. I loved the rhythmic feeling of chopping vegetables and the comforting smells of oil, garlic, and spices as they sauteed with whatever was in the pan. In a day that might involve a 14-mile hike, stealing Wi-Fi from a Walmart parking lot, and finding a place to legally and hygienically um, empty our sewage tank, it was that tread of normalcy that I clung to. Growing up, no matter what was going on, homework, boyfriend troubles, college applications, my mom always made sure we had dinner together. Cloth napkins, a candle on the table, and absolutely no devices. There were many times where I resented it, annoyed by the sense of formality. But more and more, it's something I find myself doing as I live in my own apartment. Lately, my family has all been having dinner together again. My husband, brother, sister, parents, and two dogs are all quarantining together. We do our own thing during the day, but when six or seven o'clock rolls around, some kind of internal alarm goes off and we all wander into the kitchen. Wine is poured, cucumbers and tomatoes are chopped for the salad, and the napkins and candles are put on the table. Usually we talk about that night's jeopardy, but inevitably conversations turn to the pandemic. When so much has changed or been canceled or delayed or forgotten, dinner feels like something I can rely on. When the RV broke down, while we waited for the tow truck to arrive, making mac and cheese felt like a moment of consistency I could offer, even if it was just for me. As cars whizzed by us, rocking the RV, I boiled water for pasta, and cut up some cheese to make a sauce. We drank some beer and the cheap white wine that we always made sure to have plenty of and listened to music from someone's battery-powered speakers. I added milk to the pasta and dropped in some cheese, which melted in the heat. Voila, instant cheesy comfort food. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our foreman today was executive producer Anya Schultz, running the show from San Francisco, California. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Jamaris Perez in Miramar, Florida, with help from Tay Glass in Ontario, Canada, and Asim Shukla in Manhattan. Director Sarah Gelbard coordinated our production from Rochester, New York. Senior editor Will Walkie in Duxbury, Massachusetts, 
and assistant editor Emily Pisacreta in Brooklyn led our copy team. Megan Cattell managed our website today from Manhattan, and Lucas Brady-Woods brought us today's news from Brooklyn. Our instructors, Sally Herships, Tracy Samuelson, and Camille Peterson, advised our staff from Brooklyn, New York, and instructor Ben Shapiro from Western Massachusetts. I'm Cecily Moran in Exeter, Rhode Island. And I'm Lauren Peace in Rochester, New York. This show goes out in dedication to James Hannaford, a veteran and loving grandfather to take last. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Friday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening and stay safe.